Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Glad that you're you're here with us. Beautiful day today. Maybe it's going to stay like this. Who knows? No, that, that's a delusion. Turn with me to uh, John chapter 6. We were talking about in fit uh, the uh, this morning the uh, the end times and what it all is going to look like and what we're seeing happening in the world today is just a little precursor of that. Uh, the world is being fashioned into uh, more of a one-world system than we realize. Uh, I read just this past week that the Pope is seeking to uh, to bring all religions under the Catholic banner. Uh, that would include all all religions of the world. So that they can say everyone worships the same God. What they're really worshiping is the God of this world. They're worshiping Satan. He is the God, the prince and the power of the air, the God of this world. And when you, when you fail to worship the true and living God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are worshiping anything else is worshiping Satan. I think we need to understand that as we look at the world and the situation that it's in. There's increasingly more and more hostility against Christians and against the church. And I think we're going to see uh, an escalation of that as time goes on. We might get a little reprieve in some ways, uh, depending upon the political climate, but it won't change permanently if it does change. And uh, so I would just say to you on that note, uh, exercise your exercise your uh, liberty to vote. Don't let the don't let the voting day go by without you going to the polls and voting. Uh, vote for right and vote for. Uh, what we're seeing a lot face, facing a lot now is just plain insanity. So vote for other than insanity. I think you get my drift. <laughs> oh, by the way, people have been asking me about my eye this morning. And we got up this morning and uh, uh, I told Mary, I said, I don't want to go to church. And she said, Bap, you're going to church. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I don't know how it happened. It just, it just uh, went black. So, all right. Let's go to John chapter six, and we're looking at this passage called the Bread of Life discourse. I want to begin in verse. 35, verse 34. They said to him, Sir, 
Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have everlasting or eternal Life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, do we do thank you now for the opportunity we've had to come, be together, to worship. We love you. We, you are our Lord. You are our God, our sovereign King. We bow before you. We give you the praise that is worthy of your name. You are great and greatly to be praised. And so we ask this morning that as we, as we bring this message from the Bread of Life discourse, that you would bless it, that you would teach us from it, that you would change our hearts from uh, its stubborn predisposition to one that is broken and melted before you ready to receive your word. And so I pray that you do this for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we've been studying this, the Bread of Life discourse that was presented by our Lord to this group of people that he had fed on the other side of the lake and to others who had gathered in Capernaum at the synagogue. But before we continue with the narrative and the teaching of this passage, which in my estimation is one of the most important, right up there with John 10 and John 17, uh, I want us to look at the whole of this chapter as it deals with this discourse. It is divided into three distinct parts that correspond to three types of hearers. The first section from verses 22 through 40, which we've been plotting our way through, is really given toward the self-absorbed multitude that had witnessed the miracles and had been fed by the Lord. The second section is from verses 41 through 59, which deals with the Jews in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is presumed to be during a regular meeting on the Sabbath. It was most likely the Jews in the synagogue that became the voice of discussion that ensued with argument that followed during this discourse. Third, the third section is from verses 60 through 71, and that records the dialogue with the disciples. 
many of whom defect, walk away from the Lord, and never return, and to others, his particularly his disciples, his twelve, his the ones that were with him from the beginning, uh, who understand the exclusivity of Jesus' teaching and the truth of his words. Now, in verse 28, these people wanted to know what they could do to be doing the works of God, or in other words, to accomplish what was necessary for salvation. What could they do to earn God's favor? Jesus declares to them that there isn't any work that they themselves can do, but the work is God's to do. It's God's work. There's nothing they could do to bring salvation for themselves or to procure it. They were thinking of the of the various deeds and and rules that the Pharisees had imposed upon them that had they'd been taught all their lives most likely that they had to keep the law and they had to do all keep all the rules that the Pharisees had dreamed up besides the law. And so they thought that salvation was their work. But Jesus replies that it, it's not their work, it's God's work. This is the same message that Jonah understood when he, when he made his statement that salvation is of the Lord. <clears throat> it's of the Lord. So he says in essence, salvation is God's work. And the result is that when, you, when God works to save you, then you will believe in me. This is Jesus speaking. You'll believe in me, the one whom he sent to save you. When God works in a person's heart and opens their eyes to the truth of the gospel and to the truth of who Christ is, then they they believe in Christ and are saved. Did not the angel say to Joseph concerning Mary, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's going to save his people. Well, these people are a classic picture of all humanity. They want the blessings of God, but they want it without the commitment that goes with it. Salvation is accomplished through the Son of God given by the Father. They would strive vainly to receive that which they could only have through simple belief, through faith. In the true bread that came down from heaven where real life existed. In verse 34 they said to him, Give us this bread from now on. Well, these people are spiritually blind. And what they're wanting is something physical. They want, they're still thinking about physical things that they can see with their eyes. They want like physical bread. 
But physical bread disappears quickly. Jesus offers them the true bread from heaven that feeds the star- their starving souls. He is infinitely greater and more superior than that of Moses. And the bread that he offers is not like that which appeared on the ground to feed the wandering Israelites. The bread is, this bread is spiritual and it is he himself that is the bread. So they wanted to see a sign. But he was the sign. Their statement in chapter, in verse 34, sounds like a genuine reception of his words. It sounds, it sounds good. Well, you've just told us that you're the bread of life that came out, but give us this bread from now on. Sounds good, doesn't it? But that is definitely not their meaning. They hadn't perceived the real significance of the bread that they ate on the other side of the lake. They're thinking earthly and physical, and they have no thought for their soul. Such a sad commentary on humanity that they'll, they'll grasp for everything they can within their own power except for that which is for their soul, and they have no concern for that. This is the same human thinking of the woman at the well in chapter 4 that said, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to come here and draw from this well. Same thinking. And like that woman, at first, they simply wanted to use Jesus as their never-ending source of bread. They wanted Him to be their chef. Just feed us. This is so similar to today's shallow, empty idea of Christianity. Many who fill churches across the land are but temporary followers of Jesus. Statistics came out from Ligonier Ministries. And I can't remember all of them. I should have written them down so I could have given them to you. Uh, Among evangelicals, we mentioned it this morning in FIT, only 42% of all evangelicals believe that the Bible is true. Just 42%. And that's going to dwindle even more as time goes along because of a weak gospel that has saved no one. When when real persecution comes, and it will come, you need to be ready for it. When real persecution comes, or hardships come, being identified as a Christian, many will deny the Lord and opt for temporal life and temporal comfort rather than Him. It'll happen. And so I think to myself, I asked, I believe I asked Mary, I said, what do you think, what do you think will happen when it happens here in our church? How many will, how many will stand true? I would, I would like to think that everybody here would. 
And I think most of you would. In the next verses, Jesus begins to clear the air. And this is a, this is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, with his teaching on salvation. His meaning of the bread from heaven is made more clear in these next verses. He incorporates that which is essential for human life, which is food and water, and relates that to his own spiritual life. He says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now we're introduced... We're introduced to the first of our Lord's I am statements. This is the first of the I am statements. There are many of them in John's gospel. 23 I am statements. But there are, there are seven of them. And by the way, that's used as a, a, a metaphor. These statements are used as a metaphor for his equality, his divinity, As the Son of the Father, equal with God. Jesus is described as, when he said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 8. John chapter 10, I am the the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. He also used in many other places, in an absolute broader sense, this this phrase in the Greek, ego eimi, I am, which the Jews instantly picked up on. Because there was, in their thinking, there was only one I am. From the Exodus story of Moses went up on the mountain. Whom shall I say sent me? Do you tell them I am sent you? I am that I am. This was always a flashpoint for the Jews. For they did not want to accept him as their Messiah. And they certainly didn't see him as God in the flesh. He plainly says to them... I am the bread of life. You want life? You want it through the bread that came down from heaven? It's me. He pointed to himself. This means that he alone can supply the necessary elements for eternal life that is only found in him. He is the bread of God. Verse 33, he has already said in verse 32, the Father gives the true bread from heaven. So the bread and the fish that he had supplied the day before could not cure the physical hunger of the people because now they're hungry again. We all know that feeling, don't we? We... We eat our dinner in the evening, we go to bed, we wake up in the morning, we're ready to eat again. We have to eat again. Now, some people may not, but at some point you're going to eat again or you're going to die because it's a temporary thing. Eating is a temporary thing. 
So what he's what he's talking about here is the bread that doesn't waste doesn't go away. Doesn't it's not burned up. He said that he says that he could cure their hunger and their thirst of their soul permanently. You won't be hungry anymore. You won't thirst anymore in your soul if you ate this bread and drink this water. This is the primary metaphor used in Scripture of those who do not know God is that of hungering and thirsting. People hunger and thirst. That's why Jesus alluded to these symbols so often. We see it in Matthew 5, 6, where Jesus expressed man's human need in this way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Over and over we find this in Scripture. The hungering and thirsting of the soul that does not know God. Physical bread has to be consumed. It has to be assimilated in order to sustain life. In like manner, the Lord Jesus Christ must be incorporated into one's life in union with Him through faith. It's he, later on, he goes. He even goes to the point of saying that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, which are symbols of the life that he gave for sinners. So it's an intimate union with Christ that is purely spiritual that he's talking about here. He continues to clarify that in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So you have coming to Christ seen as believing in Christ. That's why you often hear the plea. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Look to Christ. When one comes to Jesus, they leave the old life of sin and solemn pursuit of self behind and enter into a new life of righteousness with the will of God in view. The old life is gone. The new life has come. The rebellion that once existed in that old life towards God, has now turned into submission to God. Repentance for sin is granted. The sinner is transformed into a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. How you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
whenever a person comes to Christ, believes in Christ, things change. Life changes. Attitudes change. Desires change. The word turned in in 1 Thessalonians 1, the word turned in verse 9, is the Greek word epistrepho. It means to converge or to change one's direction or attention towards something. So you're, you're not, you're walking in one direction and all of a sudden Christ enters into the picture and you turn. And you, you see Him and you follow Him and, and whatever He says, that's the way you begin to go. All the old idols are gone. The old idols are put away. And Christ becomes the focal point. The one to live for. The one to follow. The evidence of the Thessalonians' faith in coming to Christ was that they were submitting to a new master. Are you submitting to a new master today? It is a decisive break from the old life. Spurgeon said, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. So coming to Christ is believing in Christ. It's believing in Him as the only one who can forgive our sin. It is placing our trust and our confidence in that fact. People say to me all the time, I have doubts. I have doubts about salvation. I have doubts as to whether I'm a Christian or not. And to that I say, continue believing. Run to the cross. Throw yourself fully on the mercy of God. And depend upon Him, come what may. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that if you are doubting your salvation because of some sin in your life, then you're depending upon your works rather than Christ. Makes sense. Oh, listen, folks, I've done it. I've doubted it so many times. But I always go back to, is Christ dependable? Will He keep His promise to me? Yes, He will. And I believe in Him. I trust in Him. My confidence is in Him, not in me. Whether I do wrong or whether I do right, that makes no difference on His promise to me. So keep on believing, come what may. What follows next, uh, I've jumped ahead. Let me back up. I turned the page is what happened. My black, with this black eye, I can't see what I'm... <laughs> Acts 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just Christ. 
So those that are thirsty, come to the water of life and drink. Those that are hungry, come to the bread of life and eat. No one that comes will go away hungry or thirsty. This is good news for humanity that is perishing. For the one who has nothing but their sin can can find anything he needs in Christ. If, if your sin is all you have, bring that to Jesus and he will give you the bread and the water. In verse 36, Jesus denies the genuineness of their response by saying, they said, give us this bread. And he said to them, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. He knew their hearts. He knew who the unbelievers were. Here we have a turning point in Jesus' dialogue on the bread of life. This is a statement of human responsibility. God will hold them responsible for not believing in Christ, not believing in the Son. And He holds everyone who does not believe responsible Blame of their lostness is on their heads. Did the Son of God desire that they would come to Him? That they would believe in Him? A resounding yes. And yet, we can see, we can see that in Matthew 23 where He prayed, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. You refused. These are the people, many of them he's talking about. You refused. They had seen what he had done in in performing miracles. They didn't grasp the significance of the miracles. History always repeats itself in the lives of men. Their forefathers had also seen God's miraculous works, and yet they did not believe. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Notice verses 1 and 2. Back up to, back up to, uh, verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, this is, this is the age old problem of humanity. It's not just the Jews. People Refusing to believe. 
The miracles that they had seen only created an insatiable thirst for more miracles. Forget the fact that he's the Messiah. We just want to see more miracles. Give us more miracles. And unless physical sight is joined with spiritual enlightenment, it has no profit. How can these men who were schooled in the scriptures stand before the very creator of the universe, of the world, the one who the scriptures foretold and not believe? Even after they had seen all that he had done of healing their diseases, of feeding them and all the miraculous works that he had performed. How could they not believe? The answer to that is because of their severe deadness and darkness. It is the deadness and darkness of the human soul that this happens. That's why sometimes you be talking to some people about the gospel. You can talk about anything in the world and they're just alert and the eyes are are keen. And you bring the gospel into it and it's like blinders just come on and it's just there's nothing there. The lights are on, but there's nobody home. What follows next in verse 37 to 40 are some of the most wonderful and yet some of the most baffling statements of all Scripture. They are paradoxically linked to what is some of the most encouraging truths of Scripture, as well as some of the most fearful and fought against of Scripture. Once realized for the truth that is contained in them, these verses become an anchor for the soul of the believer. If they are not, if they are not an anchor, They become a disruption of the soul. They stress both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Which, by the way, is something that you nor I can ever make meet. Someone has described the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man as Two parallel lines that meet out there in the somewhere in the future. But listen, folks, two parallel lines never meet. You can project them out into space from one side to the other. They never meet. I can't make it meet. So what do you do with a sovereign God who controls everything and, and causes everything? And with man who is responsible for his own soul. You see, I don't have to make them meet. I just have to believe they're both true. God is the one who understands how that happens, not me and not you. You simply have to believe that it's true. And this is what Jesus is talking about in these next verses. He is not discouraged or dissuaded from the mission that the Father has given him to accomplish. For that mission is rooted in the sovereignty of Almighty God. That means that it cannot fail. 
That's why Jesus could pray in John 17. The work you gave me to do, I have accomplished. Hadn't gone to the cross yet. Hadn't been raised from the dead yet. But it was accomplished. Jesus asserts five eternal truths in this passage. Five eternal truths, and here they are. I'm not going to expound them today because I don't have time. What I'm going to do is come back here next week. and um, Or uh, not next week. I'll be preaching something different next week. Um, In two weeks, I'm going to come back to these passages, and we're going to dissect them like this. Number one, from verses 37 to 40. Those whom the Father gave to the Son will come to Him. Wow. That sounds, that sounds pretty sure, doesn't it? So did Jesus come to potentially save people? Or did He come to actually save people? This is stated again in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 2, as well as other passages in this gospel, chapter 10 as well. So these words are Jesus' first explanation of man's unbelief. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Number two, those who come to him would be certain... Of welcome. Jesus said to them. You will not come to me. That you might have life. But if they do come to him. If they do believe in him. They are guaranteed a welcome. He will not turn them away. He would never turn anyone away. Who comes in faith. For help with their sin problem. Ever. He always meets that sin problem's need when people come to Him in faith believing. Number three, His reason for appearing among men was to do the Father's will. Verse 38. It was the will of the Father to save a people for Himself. To save people for Himself out of the masses Of the peoples of the earth. These people. Have been marked off. By God. From all eternity. Let's think about that for a moment. From all eternity. Before the creation of the world. God. Knew the masses of people. And he. Marked off those. That he. Would. Bring to his son in time. It's an amazing thing. That's why, that's why Jesus can say, all that come to me, I'll never turn away, and all that the Father gives me will come to me. Number four, in the Father's will, the Father's will, 
was the preservation of those whom he had given to the Son. In verse 39, I won't lose any of them. I'll keep all of them. Nothing, nothing can happen to those who belong to the Father, for he has them to give to the Son. This is why Stonewall Jackson could sit on his horse with bullets whizzing by him, cannonballs blasting around him, and never move. Because he believed he couldn't die until God was finished with him. And he was right. I've given a few passages there. Hebrews 1, verse 14, where it says the angels, the angels watch over those who are heirs to life. Number five, and the last one. This preservation is guarantee is the guarantee of eternal life to the believer, which is sealed by the resurrection of Christ and His raising of them at the last day, in verses 39 and 40. In other words, Jesus said, Because I live, you will live also. And so when He, when he rose from the grave, never to die again, ever to, be, to die again, He promised that all of those that are His would also be raised. And he wouldn't leave a single one of them behind. So the two elements are clear in the declaration. The divine element of the choice and will of the Father. Carried out in the purpose and power of the Son. And the element of beholding him. Coming to him. And believing on him. Those are the things that are encapsulated in this passage through verse 40. Now I know and I recognize that that the teaching of this passage is foreign to some and can be difficult to understand. And I don't think that we necessarily need to understand it, but more to just believe it for the truth that it is. We can bring some understanding to it. But there are some things that God alone knows that we will never know. Now, maybe we'll know them in eternity future when we're with Him and He'll teach us those things. But for now, we just rely upon what the Scripture says, what it teaches and so we're going to we're going to go into that in two weeks' time. Um, so hold on, stay with it. All right, that's all I'm going to say on that. Now. Um,